Ladies and gentlemen, this is your places call. All right, everybody, back to one. Stand by lights one and sound one. Camera speeding. Audio speeding. Lights and sound. Go. And action. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Pretend World's Real People. Hi, guys. <laughs> I'm Stephanie. And I'm Tyler. Uh... Thanks so much for sticking around. I know we skipped uh, last week. Um, things have gotten kind of busy, but um, we're we have a really great guest today, so we're excited. Yes, we do. We have a uh, a new friend from uh, I almost said former friend from 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 another friend that I'm still friends with. We're both still friends with uh, Amy. I'm sorry, I messed that one up. Uh, but, <laughs> Um, a, a mutual friend of our friend Amy Floyd. Um, she is a, a writer, a director, a producer. She's an advocate. Av- I'm sorry, advocate for mental health awareness. Mm-hmm. I can't even talk today. I need coffee. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she is, quite frankly, one of the most passionate and creative people that we've ever had the chance to talk to. And I'm really excited to share this episode because she has so much uh, insight into you know the process of creating something, especially the uh, theatrical production side. And, uh, yeah, I think she's really made an impact on us during this, uh, this interview. So I'm really glad to share this episode with you. Uh, today, if I may present, Emma King Farlow. Emma! How are you? Hi, Emma! Welcome! <laughs> Lovely to be here. Thank you for having me. No, thank um, you for being a part of it. Oh, no, it's an absolute pleasure. I've enjoyed what I've heard of uh, your previous episodes so far, and I'm just looking forward to catching up on the rest of them. Lots and lots of entertainment. Um, I mean, you have the rest of today, right? So you can just streamline. (laughs) (laughs) I do indeed, while my dad is off fishing. (laughs) So I'll entertain Uh, myself. (laughs) Uh, For those of you listening... I will edit this out in case we have any technical difficulties, but we are going overseas this week and talking to a new friend, Emma. And uh, Emma, if you wouldn't mind telling our listeners who you are and what you do. Um, no, of course, I'd be delighted. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my name's Emma king and I'm a freelance writer, director, producer, and sometime actor. Um, and the artistic director of a small independent theatre company based in London in the UK called Shadow Road Productions. So fancy. <laughs> such that's a, a lot of hats. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that is such like a heavy label. That's a huge business card. That's what I'm going to say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, as as previously discussed in an off the record sort of a way, um, I I am a, I don't want to say easily bored, but you know, I have a wide range of interests. Um, so sort of pursuing them all, and um, and I think because you know these days, I think if you work in the creative industries, the more hats you can wear, the more chance there is that you're going to be working at any given moment. Um, so I actually, I started doing a bit more acting and then let that fall by the wayside when I was directing more, partly because I used to get terrible stage fright. <laughs> um, and mm. uh, once, once I was doing more and more of the directing, I kind of felt like, you know, it's your responsibility to ensure that everything else is going well and to look after the cast and things. And so I didn't really feel like, 
that it would be entirely responsible to be doing all of that while sort of indulging my own terror. So I um, I stopped acting for a while. But then in, in recent years, been working on a project called Fireside Folktales, which has involved rewriting, adapting um, some classic myths, legends and general tales from around the world for as small a cast as possible. <laughs> we actually, we started with six, then went down to five and then have settled at four. Um, although some of the venues that we go to would be even happier if we could make it smaller, um, which is something else I'm currently working on. But now um, to keep the company as small as possible, um, it then made sense as I was gonna be there on site anyway for me to be one of the four actors. Um, and that was uh, just sort of 2019, um, got back into acting again with that. And the first few shows were indeed just as terrifying as I remembered. But, um, but because it was a lovely kind of company and we were kind of all in it together and stuff. And it was all actors that I'd worked with before who were actually friends as well. Um, so it was probably the best kind of place and way to get back into it. And now it's, you know, we've done we've done so many of those shows and uh, in, in quite high pressure situations. And, um, you know, we've done anything up to four shows in a day. And in any one show, you might be playing anything up to 13 characters. So, um, so it was kind of a bit of a rebaptism by fire, if you will. And so now I'm, I've sort of, I've made peace with, with the whole stage fright thing. Um, although I say that it has now been a little while since the last time we, um, we did manage though to, uh, do three shows in the middle of last summer, which, you know, obviously pandemic and things, but. Um, over here in the UK, there was a kind of there was a window in the summer of a couple of months where you could do open air theatre, and I think limited amount of indoor theatre, but with the social distancing and everything else, that wasn't entirely practical in terms of the number of people you could get in an audience and things. But um, it kind of it allowed us to do uh, three different shows, including uh, the premiere of. Um, my new adaptation of Macbeth um, so uh, at long long last not that it was like a lifetime's ambition of mine or anything but it turned out to be quite cool um, I played Lady Macbeth among other things in that show um, and uh, along with Amy Floyd who I think you interviewed uh, some 15 or so episodes ago I think <laughs> <laughs> um she's been doing some serious multitasking for us as well and she played Macbeth um so that was that was a lot of fun and it was nice in the middle of a pandemic um to to get back on stage and um kind of get a little bit of a taste of what life used to be like yeah. um, slightly new normal because obviously our audiences were still socially distant and everything but um but you know it was nice especially before everything closed in again over winter so yes that was the last time I did any acting um, and it was a memorable sort of an experience but a good one can you pinpoint what it is about stage fright or being on stage that causes the stage fright do you think 
I'm so curious because I, I know it's a little different for everybody, but um, yeah. it's not something I think it's really awesome that you you have been able to work through it. I mean, mm-hmm. even if it's not your number one job, you know, uh, being able to either overcome it or or let it be there without it preventing you from doing the, the job, you know, uh, but I am curious. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I think, um, I think it, because I remember even when I, even when it was at its worst, once I was on stage, it was fine. You know, you kind of, it's like that right up to that very last minute when you're in the wings and you're like, what, what's my first line again? Pass me a script, somebody. (laughs) And you've got no idea what it's going to be. And then you step out there and suddenly, suddenly, you know it, (laughs) suddenly it's there and it's fine. Um, But right up to that last minute. And I think, um, I don't know. I mean, some of it is, it's for me anyway um it's <laughs> it's faintly ironic that actually I hate being the center of attention <laughs> so like part of it is you just know everyone's going to be looking at you um and also that they need something from you um and also I think there's always kind of the fear that you're going to let let your other cast members down because mm-hmm. you know if you're you're all kind of so close knit both literally in terms of the storytelling that you're doing together and often usually I hope um in terms of you know the friendships you've made and the kind of you know the relationships that you have and you don't want to let them down because everyone has put in so much work you don't want to be the weak link who kind of ruins what they've done and stuff um so I think you know for me, it was kind of both those things. Um, and and there is the element of like, once you're out there, you're stuck out there until until you're actually legally allowed to leave at the end of your season <laughs> or whatever. But until that moment, you are stuck there and people will be watching you. Um, and yeah, then just being afraid that, you know, you will forget your lines or someone else will and you won't be able to help them properly or whatever it's all those kind of things but I think most of it for me anyway um came from not wanting to let other people down more than anything else um and so and you know when I guess that fed into why I stopped doing Mm -hmm. it because I felt like the balance between kind of what I would contribute and what I was getting from it versus what I was risking um and uh, that mainly being the possibility that I might let other people down or not mm. do my main job of directing to the best of my ability. So that was, you know, I think that all fed into me deciding to take a step back. Um, and I suppose, although having said that, there were there were occasions where we had one, we did one winter show where um, I think by the end, by by the opening, we had six people call in sick one way or another. <laughs> so, so I actually had to step in at the last minute. Um, and I ended up doing six different pieces in that show. Thankfully, it was a bit of a compilation thing. It was kind of for Christmas. So there were there were some kind of scenes and then there were some that were just poems and readings and things it was a kind of a Christmas fundraiser type thing but um that and then there was the other time we were doing a murder mystery dinner um for the public and 
food poisoning was a thing. I hasten to add it wasn't due to the restaurant that we were staging the show in. They were excellent. Their food was delightful. I won't name them just in case anyone doesn't believe me. But, um, but you know, it wasn't them. But uh, that, again, at the last minute, I had to step in, um, fashion a really embarrassing Italian accent. Oh, no. <laughs> and uh, take over as the detective. Um, although I do remember, luckily, because I had one of those like police notebooks, so I was able to scribble down the seriously important lines and plot points in that notebook, because I literally, I think I had about two hours notice before I was suddenly a slightly alarming Italian detective. Oh, but um, happily for me and for the rest of us, because some of the other cast had already done an excellent job of swapping around, taking on larger roles than they should have done so that, you know, the ones that we were replacing with the smallest possible roles. Um, but thankfully the audience all seemed to love it. <laughs> so, you know, I'm, I'm sure everybody listening and, and you guys as well, you probably have all those stories of how you, things go terribly wrong at the last minute, but you've got to find a way of fixing it because you've got people waiting waiting um and they don't know they don't know that half your cast just fell ill or the scenery fell down or all your props got broken or whatever it is they just they just know that they've come to see this show and they want to enjoy it so i guess we all make it happen some way don't we mm -hmm. <laughs> seems to be the beauty of theater from the you know multiple stories we've heard i find it like i totally get the um, you know, the anxiety, you know, like the stage fright of, of being an actor on stage. I can't even fathom the amount of stress you're under as a director or, you know, what, what stuff does stage managing when you're mm. in, in a moment's notice, anything can go wrong and you're on the jump trying to figure out how to make it work. That, that stresses me out more than anything. So I don't know how you two do it. It motivates me. It's kind of the things I love about the job. It's like <laughs> something goes wrong. So I get, I have to fix it. And it's, it's, it's such a challenge. I actually kind of enjoy it. I mean, it's frustrating as hell, but um, I, I don't know. I like, I like kind of problem solving in the last minute. Um, mm, as long as it's a for a valid reason. Manager. If some, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like they if one of those people called out and they were quote unquote sick, I would have been pissed. But like, <laughs> you know, things actually when things actually happen. Uh, yeah. So like part of the yeah. job. When did you? And I know we may have talked about it a little bit in our preliminary meeting, but when did you know you wanted to be in the arts, whether it was acting or directing? Was there a moment you can go back to where you thought, yes, or was um, it just something you were I mean, born I with? <laughs> I I'm, I know it was always something I wanted to do I've got oh, writing and things I've got I've got drawers of horrendously awful short plays about sinister butlers and things that I wrote when I was kind of in primary school <laughs> so you know the sinister butler uh, a, a staple of well pretty much every genre I like to think <laughs> um but yeah so I, I think I've, I've always kind of wanted to do that um I uh, I did a lot of 
both writing and performing and directing and things all through school and I did want to go on to either drama school or film school afterwards but my parents were fairly adamant that that was not a a, a sensible person's career path <laughs> um, so I actually went to university and studied theology and philosophy um but I did uh, I did a certain amount of both theatre and um, started a filmmaking society and things while I was there. So kept my hand in, in a creative sort of a way. Um, and, you know, then when I when I came out, I actually um, had a, sort of quite a period of ill health. So then I wasn't able to go on to um, to drama school or film school at that time. Um, and then when I when I started recovering, I kind of worked my way back slowly. I did um, I did an intensive summer course with the New York Film Academy, um, and and then kind of started just learning more, doing short courses here and there because I wasn't really sure that I was um, you know in a position to do a long course at that time, um, and and you know then just started making my own work and um and you know then meeting people and I kind of I found a mentor and things and um and you know I think the best way to learn is is to do I think um and and then yeah the more people you meet the more connections you make um and and when I had been stuck at home unwell I'd done a lot of writing then so I'd kind of been um sharpening my writing skills at that point and and with the the kind of theatrical stuff when you're writing that um I kind of I tend to write with with my director's hat at a jaunty angle on the other side of my head <laughs> so that I can um you know I'm I'm often writing knowing I'm going to direct what it is I'm writing so then in order to kind of save a bit of time later I'll like I'll put in more stage directions than I would put if I was writing for someone else or if I was going to submit it for publication or something um so you know that that again is it's kind of a different way of working out what your what your style is what you know what it is that you intend to do and then of course once you get in a rehearsal room um you can test everything see if it works make the changes and things it's quite convenient being both the writer and the director because I don't have to argue with myself when I want to make changes <laughs> um I also don't have to justify them to myself which is nice um although that's not to say I haven't worked with other writers and um I have um I've directed uh, a number of people's first, second, in some cases later in their careers, plays for them. And um, and it's always been a, an interesting experience. Um, I've, I know I know some directors prefer to work with uh, with writers who are no longer with us <laughs> so that they don't have to uh, <laughs> enter into too much discussion with them. I think there are definite advantages and disadvantages to both. Um, but in most cases, when I have worked with other writers, they've kind of become friends. So then it's easier to, to discuss stuff. Um, and then, you know, when you're working with the not so recently deceased, like... Um, you know when I was adapting Macbeth and things um 
you know, there isn't really anyone around to uh, to have very vocal opinions when you're when you're changing things around. And, you know, uh, so, again, I guess it's all it's all about variety, isn't it? I think I've wandered really far off the path of the question that you asked me. <laughs> we have yeah. forged a new uh, path. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Yes, yes, we have. <laughs> bravely gone ahead somewhere no one foresaw us going um, <laughs> See, we, i said we're not we're, we're not a reigning in type of crew i want to hear everything <laughs> I, wanna... <laughs> I, d- I did warn you tyler that you would need to rein me in no you're... this is amazing i love it <laughs> i am so curious um what your adaptation style is um you know are you changing the text are you just cutting text how are you how do you decipher what stays what goes mm. i it depends very much i mean i the sort of uh the two biggest adaptations in terms of working from a text um that i've done have been a christmas carol and macbeth the mm. other ones i've done have been more working on a particular story um the other fireside folktales um shows kind of include the myth of persephone and the pomegranate seeds and robin hood and aesop's fables and things and in those cases i just i read a lot of versions of the story um decided what was most important to me and then put all that stuff to one side and just sat down and wrote my version of the story knowing that I was writing for a cast of four and you know potentially for a particular audience and that sort of thing so that's kind of that's one way of doing it when there isn't a definitive text that you're working from um with A Christmas Carol and Macbeth um in both cases uh obviously both of those um pieces of work have a sizable cast of characters um and i i knew i had four people to play all of those characters which does mean that you can never write a scene that has more than four people on stage at once um so for example with the dickens uh you know where in in the original you're kind of in the room watching everyone having their christmas party or whatever in my version, you are in the side room, kind of seeing what's going on, the people who've just nipped out from the dinner table or have left the dancers in the other room. Um, so it's kind of, it's necessarily intimate. Um, and I think that um, because you can't, also I think because I'm, I am primarily interested in human relationships and how we relate to each other, um, it's a, one reason why I do a lot of character work when I am directing and working with actors. I do a lot of stuff with them, lots of kind of exercises and things, because I feel like um, the more comfortable you are with your character, not only the easier it is for you to actually to perform on stage and to not have to think about it. But I also think in some ways, if anything does go wrong, if you forget your lines or anything else, then knowing your character inside out, I think makes those moments easier as well, because it's easier to improvise or, you know, um, to kind of know what needs to happen in that moment, because you know your character and you know how they relate to the person they're on stage with. 
Um, so for all those reasons, I, I do do a lot of character work. Um, and I, I guess I do a certain amount of that in the writing as well. Um, but for example, with A Christmas Carol, um, the main interest is kind of how did Scrooge become the person that he ends up being, the one that we meet at the beginning? Um, because when you when you delve into those flashbacks, he's a very different young man. Um, and so, you know, it's kind of um, looking at those things, looking at the relationships he had, but also I think those relationships help to explain how he changes back because otherwise being as kind of crabby and um miserly and you know um just hating humanity as much as Scrooge seems to at the beginning it is you know it's quite a sizable change to make and yes there are three ghosts involved and things but um but again if you want to make it believable um, I think you kind of you have to see that those those kind of that he's maybe not that way entirely through choice. Um, and so it's not as big a, a step back for him to to kind of return to the younger man that he was, um, as you might think it is. And, and some of that is kind of finding the relationships and things. And um, so, you know, uh, I think I. I built up certain characters like his best friend and like Belle we we hear about Belle very briefly um but I actually she has three scenes in in our version of the show and and each of them kind of uh contributes to it shows you who Scrooge was and then how he's changing and how that affects his relationships and then why they break down and what the effect of that breakdown is on him. And also you can kind of see how, how things could have been so different just because, you know, there are moments where the two characters sort of have their back to each other and we, the audience can see how they're both reacting. And if either of them would, just turn and share what they're feeling in that moment the whole story could have been so different but neither of them do and so we can see we can see how close they came but obviously neither of them do and and I think um so I uh I use a certain amount of the text um because I you know there's no reason not to these are the people who wrote the good stuff they know you know they know their characters and things so I use um you know, as much as I can, although often um, in order to serve the story in the way I'm telling it, um, I might mix it up a bit. Like in Macbeth, um, there's a there's a scene with Lady Macduff where I think it's Lennox goes to see her um, after Macduff has left. Um, he's gone to England to join Malcolm and um, and she's kind of furious and talking to Lennox and also her son is there as well kind of chiming in from time to time um precocious child but um she's talking to Lennox um and sort of saying you know how unhappy she is and, and Lennox is defending Macduff and and obviously you know shortly after that she is actually murdered on Macbeth's orders um and I actually I took some of the text from that discussion between her and Lennox and then used it in a scene 
um, between her and Macduff, which doesn't happen in the play. But I wanted it to happen because if you're going to care that Lady Macduff is murdered, and if you're going to believe in Macduff's grief later, I felt like you had to see them together mm. and to believe that they really meant something to each other, that they were connected and things. So that scene is kind of, um, uh, it's, it's partly Shakespeare, um, although not the characters he necessarily intended to speak the words. Um, I borrowed a line or two from Romeo and Juliet, so still Shakespeare, but, you know, just appropriating for a slightly different purpose. And then I wrote one or two lines myself, trying to make them sound Shakespeare-y. Um, you'd have to see the show to judge for yourselves whether mm -hmm. I succeeded or not. Um, thankfully, no one's complained yet, so, you know. But, but you know, it's, it's all that sort of thing I guess and so in terms of deciding what to include and what not to I think you kind of you need to pick your themes find out what's important to you um and also then your main story what is uh, by which I mean the kind of the aspect of the story I guess because um for me and Macbeth I was quite interested in the three witches um, and and following them and how much of, you know, how much of what happened is down to them and how much were they just observers for? And, and also, you know, because they're outside of time, um, you know, are they, are they observing humanity as it fails over and over again? Or are they just giving the slightest push to ensure that humanity fails over and over again and that interested me so we kind of we follow them and I did I wrote a new scene at the beginning so that and I then repurposed some of the other bits and wrote some new stuff at the end so that the witches kind of bookend the play they're there at the beginning they're obviously there interacting with Macbeth in the middle and then they're there at the end as well um, and you know at the end they kind of as they did at the beginning, they address the audience uh, comment on the state of humanity and on Macbeth himself, and then essentially walk away laughing, waiting for the next kind of the next set of people to um, step on stage and fail over and over again. Um, so, you know, I think the uh, the the process of adaptation does it depends very much on the resources you're going to have <laughs> for the show when you perform it um but also I guess on what's important to you and how you want to tell the story which bits which bits stand out most for you God, that's just so it, thankfully you have a passion for that because that's that's a ton of creative like puzzle working and you know creating your own like creating your own dialogue to make it sound Shakespearean to me sounds <laughs> I'm no no that's that's I do want to to ask you you know you you have done a lot of work in in theater I know you you'd studied film have you uh produced or you know written anything that was meant for the purpose of film that you have done in the past or something you wanted to maybe produce in the future um I mean I uh, I obviously, as part of as part of the course, I wrote a short film and things. I did actually. I wrote a a full length script. 
script some years ago, um, which uh, will never see the light of day. Oh, um, but, <laughs> but it was a, you know, it was a good learning experience. Um, I think I probably the next time I I write uh, for film of any description, um, I think will be as part of uh, my next project is uh, called Secret Storytellers. And it's a, it's a cross-platform kind of um, uh, a new project that involves, uh, there's gonna, there will be some live events. There will also be hopefully a web series and some standalone webisodes um, and uh, some eBooks and, uh, and a website where people can kind of come along and get involved. Um, it's sort of it's set in a in a slightly slightly dystopian future um, where kind of uh, stories and and the passing of any information that isn't properly sanctioned is is forbidden um, and in fact punishable by anything up to and including death depending on what it is that you're sharing oh um, and so our our group of people that we're following are kind of daring to tell the tales of the world before um, and that's uh, I'm kind of I don't I'm haven't pitched it to many people yet so it's kind of um I feel like some work is needed here <laughs> but it's um you know it's it's the next thing and I'm I'm kind of quite excited about it I've um been getting some some advice and things from a great a great uh filmmaker coach consultant called Bob Schultz he's been really really encouraging and um and I'm sort of looking at launching with some sort of live immersive event where you can kind of come along and spend the evening um, under the rule of the Ravens, who are the bad guys in this. Um, and I, you know, I think it's another of those things where I'm kind of hoping that people who enjoy all of that kind of anything from role playing games to, you know, um, immersive theatre in general, um, you know, fandoms I guess people who like fandoms can yeah. really buy into this because it's going to be a world you can choose a tribe and join it all of that sort of thing um but it kind of it came out of um I guess around 2016-17 you know when uh, obviously the Brexit vote happened over here yes. and then not that long after that Trump got in over where you are yeah. and then Boris Johnson got back in here and things and and I was kind of um you know I was watching that and 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 all the thing with the controversy with Facebook and the kind of the lies that were just being passed as truth and and spread and people were reading and believing because it was it was there on the screen it was in print someone had put it there so surely it must be true um and I was you know I was thinking about how um you know uh, George Orwell uh in 1984 he says um who controls the past controls the future who controls the present controls the past and it's really kind of you know it's all about this stories we tell um and I and I was thinking you know in, in both those cases Brexit and Trump and everything else that's come on since then you know there is and I don't you know people have their own reasons for voting so I, I don't want to I don't 
want to cast aspersions or get into major political sort of uh, debates and things. But but I do think that a lot of a lot of misinformation went unchallenged at that time um, and still does uh, these days, although possibly less so because of the fallout from that. But, you know, it sort of seems like some of that is because the populations in both our countries are perhaps not as well educated as they used to be um, and not taught to, um, not taught really how to debate in the same way um, or to kind of, I mean, I don't mean this the way it's gonna sound, but we're not taught in the same way to think things through for ourselves. We're kind of taught more to accept what we're told. Hmm. And also there are so many kind of, there are so many authorities. Um, and, and I was thinking, you know, no one really knows. People have opinions, but no one really knows whether, you know, whether the kind of decline in educational standards is really by, by design or whether it's just accidental due to underfunding and like electing the wrong people or whatever. Yeah. And I was thinking if it was by design, if, a, if you had a society that was purposely um, misleading and poorly educating its people, only telling them what it wanted them to know and things, what would that look like and why would they be doing it? And, and so that's, you know, that's kind of where it, where it came from. I was doing a, a writing course, a theatre writing course at the Lyceum Theatre in London. Um, and I wrote the first short play that kind of has fed into this um, in 2017. Um, it got kind of put to one side in 2018 because I had a sort of very busy year doing lots of other disparate projects. And then in 2019, we were doing Fireside Folktales. So it was only really the beginning of last year, I was um, at the London Film School and I was um, I did a, a, a short course on cross-platform storytelling. And that was when it really kind of clicked to me. And I was like, oh, this, this is the way I should be telling this story and asking these questions. And this is how it's all going to kind of fit together. Um, and I, again, was super excited about that. And then a <laughs> pandemic came along. <laughs> so, so everything has been a little bit delayed because then it sort of seemed like in the window that was coming, the best thing to do was the, the stuff we were already familiar with because we didn't have much time. Um, and, you know, because I had been working on Macbeth and things. So it's only really now in what is, I think, our third lockdown over here mm. that um, that I've kind of had the time to really start working on secret storytellers and things. So, so I am looking forward to that. And, um, and, you know, kind of seeing how, how the world comes together. Um, and some of that will involve, you know, writing some, some webisodes, some standalone ones, and then also hopefully a bit of a web series. And those will be kind of a mixture of kind of things that supplement what you're seeing elsewhere. Um, because you're going to kind of meet the same characters on the website in the books, um, you know, and uh, on social media and things. So that then when you when you come to the live events, you're not just coming to a two person play. You're actually coming to 
essentially a, a clandestine meeting um, and and you're seeing these two people, these two characters, two of the magpies um, who are the good guys in this world, um, the ones who are daring to tell those stories and spread the information that the authorities don't want spread and tell the real history um, how things really happened and stuff you'll be meeting those two magpies rather than seeing two actors tell a story you're going to meet two magpies who will then tell you a story um, after warning you about what to do if you're raided and all of that sort of stuff so it's um so it is kind of hopefully going to be super immersive and but it should fingers crossed it should also work for the man on the street who just stumbles in, doesn't know why he's there, but sits down to watch a show. Hopefully yeah. he's also going to get something out of it. So we'll see. <laughs> but all of which is my very long-winded way, I realise, <laughs> remembering what the question you asked was, my very long-winded way of saying, yes, I would like to go back to doing some film, but actually I think I'm going to get other directors in to do it because I think... Uh, I think a person should know their limits. <laughs> and, <it's, laughs> um, and I think also it's lovely to have other creative input, um, you know, invite other people to come and play in your world and see what they make of it. Because, you know, I think um, it can be easy if you're the person who's created something to be very protective of it. Yeah. But um, But I have always been a big believer that, whatever whatever the idea that improves the overall project or the overall show I don't mind where it comes from if it improves the show and it's not my idea well yay me for choosing the person who's come up with the amazing idea to be part of it um and and I think that that's going to be the same here I probably will write some of them at least to start with because because it's all in my head. <laughs> so until I get more of it outside to share with people, um, it would be a bit harder for them to write it because they don't know the world and they don't know the characters. But um, but then getting other people in to direct and bring their, their skills and their talent and add their individual flair to all of it. I, I can't wait to see that. I think that will be brilliant. Um, and then eventually somebody else will know the world well enough to be able to write for it as well. And then I'll just sit down, put my feet up and have a beverage of some description. <laughs> That's the plan anyway. We'll see. That's such a cool idea. I love it. Um, it's a unique way to do immersive theater too. It's not, um, it's not just like some weird, you go into a show and all of a sudden you're talking to the actors and the, you know, whatever it's, it's like a, um, when I was younger, um, I can't actually think of any other than Xena and Hercules at the moment. They're the only ones that come to mind, but, and obviously now there's the Arrowverse, all the crossovers and things. I absolutely loved it when something you saw in one world or in one TV show or something, they suddenly popped up and it was relevant somewhere else. Um, Cause it kind of, immediately opens up the world and makes it more real and more you know more interesting it makes the world larger and things and and so like you know I 
I want you to be to watch a one minute thing on Instagram that kind of mentions a character and then somewhere else you can go and read read an ebook about what happened to him or something you know or he might turn up in one of you know he might be one of the magpies you might get to meet him when he's um doing one of the secret meetings where they tell you the story of you know Persephone or whatever else it might be um just all the kind of the stuff that makes you believe these people do exist and they exist in more than one place and they feed into the story in so many different you know in so many different ways and from so many different angles and also just because as previously discussed I am easily bored so um, <laughs> I think the, um, the the greater number of create the different creative media I can work in um major plus there um but also you know world building it's kind of it's like that was one thing I always loved about writing um because you know there's no budget when you're writing you can write a world as big as you like and have as much as you like happening in it and not have to worry about how you're going to uh, create it yourself or how you're ever going to afford it and things um and I think obviously this is on a much smaller scale but because it spreads across the different kind of platforms and everything the different types of media it does give you opportunities to build a world in a way that sticking with a single you know just theatre or just film doesn't allow you to um so yeah fingers crossed (laughs) (laughs) where do you I mean obviously it's it's definitely internal you know ideas will stick in your head but where do you store all the information for your for your stories do you have multiple hard drives do you like writing longhand what's your what's your go-to technique for keeping all this stored away um, um it's a very good question Tyler I do not have multiple hard drives <laughs> I should do probably but I don't I also I mean actually I'm I'm uh you know this is a very definite do as I say not as I do um people listening at home I'm sure you already do actually I'm the idiot here but um I I do not back things up nearly as much as I should if I did I would have multiple hard drives (laughs) um but I I kind of I am a big fan of the actual physical book you can kind of see uh lots of shelves behind me this is just a fraction of the actual books. Um, most people who know me generally despair because of the uh, the number and the the weird places they pop up and things. But I am um, like a post-it in a page of a book is kind of one way of you know just like I, when I'm working on a project, I usually have a pile of books on my desk, and each of them will have a million post-its next to every kind of snippet that looks like it might be useful. And and you know, I some of that I feel is not unjustified, given that you know um, we have experienced power cuts and things, and we had no Wi-Fi for weeks when we moved into this house. Um, so you know. If I if I was reliant on the internet and things, I would have been in trouble. Big fan of the book, um, but also then, yes, I do. I kind of I 
scour various articles and things and then we'll copy and paste everything into one master document this is the stuff about whatever and then I'll also type in my own notes and things um and then yeah I also <laughs> I just sound wildly disorganized here but I also have um pages and pages of um of yeah handwritten notes big fan I kind of there is something about writing by hand I think it's kind of it is um like I think it's actually acknowledged this is not a thing I've made up but when you have to write something yourself um I think it kind of it sticks in your brain a lot more um mm -hmm. so but obviously you know time is money people so I will I'll often just write the bullet points the serious kind of this is what I need to remember things um but I will then write them down so I have them on a page but then the perfectionist side of me gets sad when I have more notes to add and suddenly what was a beautiful neat sort of a thing whether it's a mind map or, or kind of a a more linear list of notes or something it gets messier and messier as I and my writing gets smaller and smaller as I add bits around it um <laughs> all of which kind of I don't in terms of uh giving anyone else any advice I'd sort of say do what works for you <laughs> in terms of sharing my process such <laughs> as it is um it is uh eclectic is probably the best way to describe it. Um, but yeah, it's it's all those things. Um, I do kind of find though, in a way, creating the Word document with all the stuff in, the actual useful bit of it is finding the stuff and copying it over, not so much referring back to it later in many ways. It's kind of knowing you've got it there, but but you know, I don't, I don't know that I go back to them that often. I know I've got them there and I know I did the reading and the research to create it. But then once I've done that, I don't, I don't know that I refer to them all that often, but it's good to know that you've got them to refer to, I think. Um. <laughs> it's, I, I think it's, it's hard for any writer to relay how their process is. <laughs> it's because because mm. to you it just it becomes normal right you have your own sort of you know uh uh lawrence kasdan still writes longhand you know he doesn't mm. type scripts um but no i like it i like the idea of you know it's it's branched out i have a bunch of books i i have notes here i have digital it just yeah that's uh <laughs> that makes me feel better about my process because i'm about the same way <laughs> <laughs> I, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a little chaotic with that's with what i'm here documents. for tyler that's what i'm here for <laughs> i can relate i relate to it <laughs> oh, we are not alone <laughs> um i want to make sure we talk about uh your one of your other really amazing projects that focuses on mental health can you talk yes. about that one a little bit um yes I am uh I, I I've done quite a lot of work on on mental health in in different ways um I actually run a mixed arts mental health awareness festival and short film prize um uh Amy actually helped me set up the short film prize um and uh, and essentially is still running it to this day um we 
in last year that was the only component of the festival that actually um that actually went ahead and it went ahead online but we did have the the largest number of entries and votes um from an international audience that we'd had before which is wonderful awesome. um but before that because I, I started the festival in 2016 but before that i'd already done quite a lot of work particularly on military mental health actually 2016 was kind of when I expanded from the more specific military angle of things um out to a more general kind of um you know just mental health at large for the public but we also included um particular events kind of for creative people because you know I think as we'll probably circle back round to, I think mental health in the entertainment industries is sort of both a troublesome and important subject, though it is getting more attention these days than it used to, which I think is important. Um, but yes, probably I think the project you're referring to is um, Dreams from the Pit, which was uh, my first full length play, actually. Um, I researched and wrote that and directed it in 2013, um, working with Combat Stress, which is a, a UK charity that's particularly concerned with um, the mental health of serving an ex-military. Um, and uh, I've got a lot of help from the Grenadier Guards, um, even at the moment over in, in our little theatre cottage where the company is now based. Um, I have nine helmets hanging on the wall that, um, that the Grenadiers gave us, um, all of which I think had seen action in Afghanistan and elsewhere. Um, but Matt is, is the regimental casualty officer for the Grenadiers. Um, and he was just uh, brilliant. I don't think I could have I don't think I could have done the show without him. He kind of, he introduced me to so many people. He, he answered questions. I mean, I, I had a kind of, I had a little list of military friends, um, some of whom are also actors, some of whom weren't, but I'd uh, sort of, I'd, uh, I'd be researching. And then when I moved on to the writing, I'd just be there typing all hours of the day or night. And a question would come up, like whether it was big or small. And I'd just, send a quick message so would you be wearing this when this happened or what would they say if this happened or whatever and inevitably one or other of um of my friends uh matt and um we had uh, another actor alex who was a welsh ex-welsh guards and um arthur who was uh, logistics um and uh, several other people, uh, they'd, they'd all come up with the answers. And I think because at that time, um, certainly in the UK, uh, we were still in Afghanistan, but things were winding down. Um, and and there were, you know, obviously there'd, there'd been Iraq before that. And so the, um, you know, the incidences of PTSD and, and obviously alcoholism has always been a bit of a problem I um I did spend some time working at a uh, at a homeless shelter in in Victoria in London um some years before that and a number of the people that we dealt with were ex-military um and they often had sort of drink and drug problems um and you know there's there's a you know there is 
room to ask, I suppose, how much of that comes down to what they went through while they were serving and things and how much of it might be, you know, might be, I don't want to say inevitable, but, you know, because certain people go into the military because they already, they already have particular problems or whatever or, or un, unstable home lives things like that and going into the military gives them purpose and and stability and things and then when mm. they leave they lose all of that again so it's you know it's it's a lot to deal with but you know again I am in no way an expert on this subject and there are a million stories to tell so um, I don't want it to sound like I'm generalising. This is what all the military are like. I, I couldn't possibly know that. I just want to, to make that clear in case anyone thinks I am positioning myself as some sort of expert. I'm definitely not. But um, but you know, in that in that year, I met and interviewed a number of um, both serving and ex uh, military and. Um, uh, some chaplains, the padres, a number of counsellors and some family members who'd had to deal with the fallout. Um, and then from that, I wrote a play which um, then got performed at the Palace Theatre, which is currently the home to Harry Potter. <laughs> so um, that's that's the general uh, claim to fame for that particular production. Um, Eye-opening experience, um, but I in in some ways I was just sort of surprised by how um, how incredibly open everyone was, um, and how generous with their time and and their the help they offered i i took my whole troop of actors to wellington barracks where put them through their paces and kind of taught them as much as they could um and then we had some medics from the grenadiers who came to us in our rehearsal rooms and sort of taught them how to apply a tourniquet and and various other sort of useful bits and pieces um and as i say uh matt Matthew Elmer, the Grenadiers, helped us with uh, costume and, and things like that. Um, we had, you know, real uniforms. Um, and, you know, it was, it was kind of, it was a real privilege to be let into those people's worlds and to kind of try and, and do that generosity and openness justice um creating this show and and um and you know the feedback we got was brilliant and it was something I think that we were all very proud of um and you know I think it is it is so encouraging to see how things have moved on since then but then there is still a lot of a lot of work to do I think um I mean it's it's not again it's not a subject that I've looked into as much recently but I know you know at the time some of the stories I was being told included kind of um people uh going for help to to kind of um NHS and public kind of uh therapy groups and things and then being asked 
not to tell their stories because it was too upsetting for other people involved and things. And, um, and you know, I think there is there is now a lot more help for people um, like that, um, and a, a lot more kind of um, specific services and things and I know there are there are more developed policies within within the ranks and things that are designed to kind of encourage um, soldiers and officers and everyone to look out for each other um, more but I do you know I do wonder in certain cases how effective those might be given the sort of people that that you know you're relying on to speak up or whatever um you know I mean obviously there's 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 a, a reasonable amount spoken about male mental health in general anyway in the population and how you know uh, male rates of suicide are higher um and you know, largely because they choose methods that are more successful, but also because by the time they're trying, they're really trying. Um, and, you know, I think um, it is um, it is great that people are talking about things more and, and sort of um, working hard to remove the stigma and things. But I think, you know, something that is kind of mentioned quite often these days is that awareness isn't enough you actually need action um and you know I don't I don't know how things are in America but I think over here charities are filling the gap where the government should be um should be doing the work um and you know actually that does kind of lead us back ground I guess to um to the the issue of mental health in our industry in the entertainment industry because there are a lot more organizations dealing with that in the UK than there used to be um but again I think most of them are a kind of individual charities smaller sort of you know um like I know one of them for example was just set up by two actors um and obviously you know our little festival was kind of set up by me with a couple of friends and then with the short film prize um with with Amy running that um you know but um but it is it is a real problem in in our industry and I guess that none of that's going to be made easier with the pandemic and with all the people who've lost work um and you know the sort of I mean the the desperation in the population at large um especially I think over here we have um you know we have a, a group of people kind of called the excluded who kind of fell through the gaps from you know they didn't qualify for one or other type of government help but they their businesses were impacted and things and you know I think all of that on top of on top of the you know the kind of the uncertainty and things that that everyone in our industry lives with um if you don't you're very lucky but you might also be a little bit um uh a little bit frustrated I guess because the only way you could the only way you could avoid living with uncertainty would be 
being committed, I guess, to a single project, which I don't think I'm the only one who likes to uh, who likes to cast their net wide and <laughs> um, and you know um, do a lot of different things. But I guess that is um, that is maybe a sort of scales that you balance for yourself. You decide whether the the kind of the certainty. Um, is worth the, the sort of lack of variety, I suppose. Um, and, you know, because there are lots of awesome creative projects that you can do day after day. So, you know, I'm not in any way, again, I'm not saying that's a bad thing or whatever, but, but you know, I think um, we kind of, we talked about it last time we chatted, didn't we? The, mm-hmm. the fact that, um, you know, that actors and writers and directors kind of maybe walk through the world with one less layer of skin than your average person um which kind of yeah I think allows you to more easily inhabit other people's lives and 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 gives you the empathy that you need to sort of to really feel their feelings and and become them but it does I think also make you much more vulnerable to to the rejection and the uncertainty that is inevitably I mean I I feel so kind of strongly for actors generally um I mean I am a director who likes working with actors I like meeting them I like working with them I some of the best people I know are actors and I think you know a lot of that is to do with the increased empathy and also just that they're lovely people but um but you know the the kind of repeatedly putting yourself out there and giving not not a piece of work that you've researched and written and put together and then handed in and it comes back with an a or a c or you know could do better on it or something that's kind of a bit you know it's a bit sad if you put that time in but you know, actors are consistently putting themselves out there, putting themselves in rooms or, you know, saying this is who I am and then being told, well, you're not who we want. You're not what we want. Um, But then also on top of that, the kind of the rejection of you is the fact that, and I really, I feel strongly that this is very wrong, um, is the fact that so many of them never even hear the rejection. They just kind of, you know, they hear nothing having made the effort, having put the time in. Um, I mean, I, I've always made it a policy with my tiny little company that if people audition for us, they get a reply. And I actually, when we do auditions, I always say to people, you will hear from us either way. So if you don't, please feel free to chase me because it will be because our email has got lost on the way or we had the wrong phone number or something. But you will always hear from us. So if you don't and, you know, we do. I've, I, if, if the pool of people is small enough, I will phone people. Otherwise, um, we'll email or even text. It sort of depends. But but I just, you know, I don't. And I understand that obviously people working on much larger scales than I do, um, you know, they might have 200 plus people to get back to. I still don't think it is asking too much to send a blanket, a blanket BCC email to say thank you for your time. Unfortunately, you weren't right for this part. Um, 
but you know I, I kind of I feel like you should treat people the way you would want to be treated and I would want someone to send me that email or let me know mm-hmm. and I kind of I think it's I think it's the least that people are owed um just like basic respect um and I think repeatedly not getting that and repeatedly waiting and waiting and then seeing a cast announcement on Twitter that doesn't include you or something I feel like that chips away um and and you know all those things and and what annoys me is that some of those things are definitely avoidable um and I feel like as part of the addressing of mental health in the industry as a whole that could be looked at it could be made better there are things that we can do to just make it a little bit better for everybody and so you know in my tiny corner of the world I try and do that but I I feel like it is you know I, I don't think there's a good enough excuse for basic courtesy to be about abandoned but you know people I know people have their own situations and things so not judging although slightly judging yes. but not really judging just you know <laughs> hoping <laughs> something better for everyone I think. <laughs> and speaking on that it is you know it is crucial I think in, in both sides of the industry for that to happen yeah I think just this last spring for the first time in the the 10 years I've been doing this, I actually received two emails from, you know, CDs or the, or their assistants saying, Hey, you know, you weren't right for this, but you know, we'll keep you on file for any roles in the future. You know, something that says, thank you for, for doing it. And Mm. uh, of course, you know, they're, they're bigger studios that are doing that, but I still think, like you said, it should, shouldn't take too long to just graft an email (laughs) to, you know, the hundred or so people you had audition and say, thank you, mm. but we're going to pass for right now. You know, it's, yeah, it's, um, whether you're an actor or writer or, you know, somebody who's just in the industry, I feel like we all have that, that, uh, amount of empathy that no one else has because we want to live in these different worlds and, uh, mm. you know, building off of, of what you've done, you know, addressing mental health in the, the industry, especially in, in theater, what sort of advice do you have for those either going into the industry or maybe those who are kind of trying to navigate things right now in a post, uh, I guess, not post-lockdown, but semi-post-lockdown world? Um, I mean, I think my main piece of advice for anyone, whatever part of the industry you're in, um, would be to create your own work like have a passion project on the side because I think having that means that whatever else you're up to whatever else you're trying to do whatever other jobs you're applying for you have a piece of your life that you are in control of and you have an outlet for your creativity um, so that if no one else is giving you a chance to you know to be creative to express yourself then you're still giving yourself that chance. And it's also then something that, you know, when you do get that big job or small job, when you do get that other job, um, you, uh, you know, you can put it down for a bit. Um, And then, you know, when you're at the stage where you can't put it down anymore, then that's the time to be sort of 
putting it all into action and then you know that will take you somewhere by itself but you know whether you're a writer a director um a producer an actor make your own work create your own work um whatever it is you know you might want to if you are an actor you might want to experiment with writing that could be your side thing but I just think again and yes it comes back to mental health the kind of I think a lack of control is not good for anyone um and it is an inevitable part of this industry no matter which bit you're working in you're always dependent on someone else unless you're the person at the very top with all the money um and you're the person other people are dependent on but even then um you know lots of those people want to be creative and want to come along and and see stuff and things so even they want something that they don't necessarily have um and you know so those people with their money they could just make their own tiny short film or something so I think maybe it is advice that applies to literally everybody but I think a lack of control anywhere um, is not good for anyone's mental health particularly for all of us maybe so yeah that's my that's my main piece of advice um find what you love and make your own work that involves it um because you you will then have that to hang on to when the other things aren't working out quite as well plus you might be an absolute genius at whatever it is you're trying and that might be the thing that makes your fortune and gets you all the work and everything else you have nothing to lose that's <laughs> probably my main piece of advice <laughs> love it something i always tell people as young people who want to kind of go into the business and like find another aspect of the business that interests you because the more you you better understand the people you're going to be working with you know if you're an actor and you're also a writer yeah it can understand the playwright better or if you look into Mm. design like you understand why things are happening and it just helps collaboration Absolutely. Yeah, I really agree with that. I've done them um, uh, short courses on sort of lighting design and sound design and things, not because I'm ever going to be a lighting designer or a sound designer, but because I want to mm-hmm. have a better understanding of, you know, what's possible mm-hmm. and what I'm asking people for. I mean, I'm lucky I, by and large, work Um, I mean, the recent stuff I've been doing doesn't actually require any technical stuff, which is, you know, very handy from the point of view of a budget and and, you know, being as flexible as possible when it comes to venues. But um, for some of the larger shows I've done, um, I worked with this awesome lighting designer called Martin Walton and. um, I absolutely love Martin. I would try never to do a big show without him because he's so kind of, he's so inventive and so brilliant. And, um, but also because, uh, you know, I can, I can kind of tell him what I would like to achieve and sort of paint my magnificent vision for him. And then he'll be like, well, that's nice. Can't do that. But here's what I can give you. And, and inevitably what he gives me uh, ticks all the boxes I had originally and makes them better and things. And I think, you know, with Martin, I kind of, it's easy to chat and we have a shorthand and he's a friend and things. But, you know, if I was working with a new 
Um, if I was working with a new lighting designer, why would I not be working with Martin? But if I was working <laughs> with a new lighting designer, then, you know, being able to talk to them to speak their language. I think, again, also it kind of shows, um, I mean, and again, not judging because you don't always have time to find out everything about other people's specialties and things. But I kind of think it's also it does show a basic level of respect that you've taken the time to find out a bit more so that you can be a bit more helpful and communicate slightly more in the language that whoever you're working with that they understand and that they speak because I'm certain as a director they will have worked with other directors so they will already know a certain amount about how I'm likely to work or the language I'm likely to use um so you know it's sort of it seems like it is the the nice respectful thing to do that also then is going to ensure that the show itself is better than it would otherwise be um so yeah I think um the more I can know about other people's jobs the better I have actually um you know I have like when I did my film course it was kind of it was part of the thing that you worked in all the different crew positions so you got to direct your film but then you know you would you would um be the uh, the cinematographer on someone else's or you'd be doing the lighting or whatever um you know obviously standards varied but um <laughs> they certainly did for me um but you know but you you experience that and then in the theater I've you know I've worked backstage on other people's shows um you know just literally being a bit of a stagehand as well as doing specific things and I think all of that is is useful um because I also think hasn't happened to me yet because I haven't I haven't been big or successful enough but I think especially as you do get big and successful it can be very easy to forget what what you're asking of other people or the work they're putting in to make the thing you want to happen happen um so I think you know it's kind of it's not it's not exactly working your way up because this wasn't your job but it is sort of it is having an understanding of what other people are putting in for you to make your thing happen um so I think you know uh the more of that you have the better which also I suppose is one reason why I feel like it is a good thing that I have acted and am acting again because you know because uh it does it does give you um a very real because you've been there <laughs> um sense of what you're asking of other people and I think I mean I do I am a bit of a fan of directors doing acting courses and things, even if it's, you know, I've seen some around here that are just, you know, a week or something or even a weekend just geared for directors to experience what it's like being an actor and things. And, and I, I think that cannot be a bad thing and may in fact be a very good one. Um, I think generally the more we all understand each other, the better the work at the end. Also, the better the experience, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> oh, good Lord, I sound like Mary Poppins. Oh, 
on that note, is there anything you'd like to promote for yourself, Mary? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, if you're in the UK, please take a look at the Shadow Road website and see where our next shows are. Come along and see them. See us. Um, Also, if you have any interest in uh, maybe doing a little bit of acting coaching or anything with me, I will be starting that quite soon. I was telling Tyler about it just beforehand. Um, I, I now have a nice little studio to work out of, so I'm about to start working out of it. So if anybody would like a bit of of help with the odd monologue or um, audition piece or something, that will hopefully be something I'm offering quite soon. Um, And finally, do get me some fanfic, people. That's what I want. (laughs) I want to see people getting invested in things. That would be lovely. (laughs) (laughs) I I feel like there's probably more than enough things to promote and I've also probably sounded weird enough for long enough haven't I (laughs) (laughs) no we we're all weird stuff in there (laughs) (laughs) this is why we're in the industry we're 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 very creative bombastic fun people and I love every single person I've ever run into in it it's incredible (laughs) that that I mean that is true I think most of the best people I know are from the industry which is not to say that you know there aren't good people outside of it but still (laughs) but we're watching you inside (laughs) (laughs) oh Emma thank you so much for being on this show seriously like I'm glad we were able to to make it work nothing shut down uh, I know our, our internet connection has been a little unstable, but it should be just amazing. amazing. Um, and I'll edit whatever sounds like a, like a Darth Vader. <laughs> or anything that sounds just- <laughs> <laughs> Anything where I sound mildly deranged. If you could delete those bits, that'd be <laughs> No, you... And it's just, you're so fascinating to listen to. And, and I, you have, I feel like we barely scratched the surface with all the stuff you do. And um, so people definitely need to check out your website and, and yeah, if you're in the UK to go see your things, because um, I talking about it is only, only does so much sometimes. And, and I think, you know, all of, all of your various projects, um, I sound like they deserve to be seen. So Oh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, th- I think the other actors very much deserve to be seen as well because they are all brilliant. Um, last summer in particular, um, I was working with Amy Floyd, Carly Borrow and Sarah Robinson and they were all doing fantastic stuff in very difficult circumstances. Um, and then we were also joined by the lovely Alice Wilson at Christmas. Um, so, yeah, do come and see these amazing amazing artists as well because they all deserve some more eyeballs on them before the year is out okay listeners thank you so much for uh sticking around for another episode and we love to have you um please continue to uh support us through ratings reviews subscribing to us on on uh, any podcast platform you're listening to uh you can follow us on uh, facebook instagram and twitter um 
if you have uh want to donate financially we have a patreon so um yeah we just really appreciate you guys listening and uh whatever you can do to support us we really appreciate yes thank you all for listening and uh if you'd like to be a part of this podcast whether you're somebody who is getting into the industry or somebody who's been in it for a while and just you know you want to share your story we'd love to sit down with you so please email us at pwrp dot pod at gmail.com and we'll get back to you right away so on that note we have our we'll infamous awkward goodbye uh, <laughs> do you remember hearing this in amy's episode the awkward goodbye no i'm afraid now <laughs> don't be afraid don't be afraid i'm gonna we just, count this down aren't professional enough to know how to do this podcast well so yeah yeah, we'll we'll count down from three, nice and silently, Wayne's World style, and then we'll just go for a nice and awkward goodbye. You ready? I'm totally ready. Okay. I was born ready for this. <laughs>